The following is used with permission of the Columbia University Press. Hi, I'm Ethan Warren, and you're listening to Pod Thomas Anderson, a new nine-part miniseries on the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, brought to you by One Heat Minute Productions. Every week you'll be hearing from me with some excerpts from my book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, now available wherever you order books, as well as insights on Anderson and his work from critics, podcasters, actors, and more. This week I'll be discussing Anderson's debut feature, Hard Eight, with guests Jen Johans, Isaac Feldberg, and Corey Everett. Paul Thomas Anderson's debut feature, Hard Eight, is modest by the standards of the narrative tapestries to which he would soon turn. This chamber drama, set in and around present-day Reno, Nevada, follows Sidney, played by Philip Baker Hall, a flinty professional gambler who, for initially mysterious reasons, offers to mentor John, played by John C. Riley, a young man down on his luck to the point of near vagrancy. If I were to give you $50, what would you do with it? I'd eat. How long can you eat? How long can you live on $50? I don't know. I would bet not very long. After two years spent molding John in his own image, Sidney's contented lifestyle is upended when he offers aid to another lost soul, cocktail waitress and part-time sex worker Clementine, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. It's always good to meet a new friend. Oh, you took care of him? John is a very old friend. I think he's pretty adorable, the way he follows you around and looks up to you. Hello. Hi. I don't do anything that I don't want to do. You understand? Says you remember, Jimmy. Yeah! Friend lives up there. I saw you playing crap over at the original Doom. Bet the hard eight for a thousand, and you pressed it for two. Stupid bet. He thinks you don't like him. I don't. I know some things about Atlantic City. You walk around like you're Mr. Cool, Mr. Wisdom, but you're not. You're just some old hood. Please do not put a bullet in me. I love you, Sid. And please don't tell John what I've done. So you think what? That you can just walk through this life without being punished for it? Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Samuel L. Jackson. Hard Eight. Tasking John with looking after Clementine for the day, Sidney is shocked to receive word that not only have the two eloped, but that after selling Clementine's company to another man on their wedding night, the pair have bludgeoned this aggressive client and are now holding him captive in a motel room. After helping John and Clementine flee for Niagara Falls, Sidney attempts to cover their tracks, only to be accosted by Jimmy, played by Samuel L. Jackson, an iniquitous friend of John's who has come into possession of Sidney's long-held secret. Decades earlier, while enmeshed in Atlantic City's criminal underworld, Sidney killed John's father, leaving him with a lifetime's guilt that he has spent the past two years attempting to assuage. Sidney pays Jimmy off, but later that night he ambushes and kills the younger man, retrieving the cash and returning to the scene of the film's opening, alone again, and with one more death on his conscience. The road to release for Hard Eight was fraught, a key element in the Andersonian mythos. 
As the standard narrative goes, the production company, Reicher Entertainment, was distressed by what appeared to be a flagrantly uncommercial product, and executives exercised their right to remove Anderson from the editing process, stripping his preferred title, Sydney, and replacing it with their own preference, Hard Eight. Anderson demanded Reicher's permission to create his own director's cut at personal expense, only to submit his version to the Cannes Film Festival in an effort to canonize his as the true cut. When the film was accepted by the festival, Anderson and Reicher reached a détente, agreeing that his would be the version distributed theatrically so long as he conceded on the retitling, though he would never personally accept the change, referring to his debut as Sydney for years to come. The Reicher skirmish has been detailed extensively in books covering the indie landscape of the 1990s, and these narratives tend to position Anderson as an uncompromising artist holding strong against an unsympathetic commercial entity. Returning to the narrative in 2013 in his book on Anderson, Jason Spurb noted credulity-straining aspects of the Anderson-approved version of events, but with Reicher having shuddered in 1999, counter-narratives are few, and history has been written by the victor. After screening at Sundance and Cannes in the first half of 1996, Hard Eight was held for release until February 1997, and grossed less than $250,000 during its theatrical run, against a reported budget of $3 million. Those who did see it, however, were largely impressed, with critics lauding Anderson's storytelling, described by Jonathan Rosenbaum as lean and unblemished, and his humanism. The movie isn't about plot, Roger Ebert wrote. It's about these specific people in this place and time, and that's why it is so good. It listens and sees. Reviewing Hard Eight for the Los Angeles Times, John Anderson, no evident relation, wrote that if Hard Eight is forgotten when the awards start flying around, it'll be a shame as well as a mystery. Mysteriously or not, Hard Eight's only major awards presence was at the Independent Spirit Awards, where it was nominated for five statuettes, including Best First Feature. Yet the praise was not unanimous. Maitland McDonough expressed exhaustion with another trip through the seamy underside of glittering gaming life, an allusion to the outsized influence that David Mamet's House of Games exerted over not just Anderson, but also many of his peers. The unfavorable comparison to Mamet recurred in Ruth Stein's review, which described the script as stiff and mannered, and Anderson's storytelling as careless in little ways, as well as big. Sydney, or Hard Eight, is a character-driven chamber piece. It feels like a 70s movie, or a play, or maybe something that has a little more in common with David Mamet's work than typically, I think, when people think of PTA, they compare him to Scorsese or Altman, of course, but he is also a big Mamet fan. His movies are full of mammoth actors, and I will have to say that his dialogue is much more lifelike. It's harder to imitate than David Mamet's, which you can have fun with your mammoth speak all day when you watch like House Games. Can't really do that with Paul Thomas Anderson. You can sort of imitate some of the big speeches like, this is the part of the movie, or so now then, or so what then, or you can kind of get some of his um, things. He is a little theatrical at times. But Hard Eight, or Sydney, whatever you want to call it, I like Sydney, is kind of his most intimate film, and it's his most lifelike. The dialogue is also very specific to the, the speakers or the characters. Uh, this film, again, as opposed to being his Altman-esque, like Nashville or Popeye, it's more like you're saying a filmmaker I love from the 70s, because it does feel very 70s. It kind of feels like Bob Rapelson, uh, but it's more his King of Marvin Gardens. It even kind of feels like this could be a really interesting double feature with King of Marvin Gardens than say like Five Easy Pieces, which is one of my favorite films. 
I encountered Hard Eight after some of the later, more acclaimed, better known Paul Thomas Anderson films. I believe the first film I saw from him was There Will Be Blood. Uh, I also saw The Master pretty early on, and I was just hooked on this simultaneous, um, you know, narrative architecture that he was so incredibly uh, capable of creating. And just the the atmosphere of his films, the emotion that was running through them was something that doesn't didn't always seem completely aligned with the architecture and invited you to consider the film in contradictory ways that still somehow complemented each other. Uh, not to sound uh, too abstract about it, but I remember going back to Hard Eight. I first encountered Hard Eight on the Criterion Channel when it was streaming there going back and filling in a PTA blind spot. And I believe I actually watched it back to back with Cigarettes and Coffee, the short film that he had made uh, before. Uh, and I, I think that that was a really interesting way to come into Hard Eight because I was seeing this uh, initial articulation of PTA's voice and seeing so much, uh, just knowing having the benefit of, for of foresight in a way to be able to see where he would take his career from there. So many of these elements that were uh, in in early formation, in the beginning stages of, of Bloom in a way that, you know, I feel like PTA's films just really have continued to open up and become more expansive and uh, more rich uh, as they've gone. When I talked to Dennis Tafoya, the crime writer, he mentioned John C. Riley and the Velcro. And for me, it is his heartbreaking, guileless vulnerability in this scene. You know, vulnerability is really hard to play effectively and make you buy it. It can be either overdone or feel too synthetic, but John C. Riley completely masters it here, I think. You really buy that this is a lost soul who desperately, he's almost like a puppy, uh, just wants approval. He wants love from whether it's Clementine, but especially from Sydney. Everybody who kind of circulates this man's orbit wants uh, the approval of Sydney. He is the father figure that Paul sort of has throughout all of his movies or the mentor, the person that you find. His movies are often about ambition for ambition's sake or trying an angle or trying to sneak past, um, you know, make your way around the board, essentially collect $200, but maybe not do the work the, the proper way. Um, or just you want that fame or you want that love, but do you actually have the talent or the knack or why are you doing this? His movies kind of all go down that path. And I think um, John C. Riley here is is really excellent. The further away Heart 8 gets in terms of the kinds of movies he makes, and it's when you revisit it now, it's almost impossible to imagine the PTA of of this century making anything that looks like this movie. And not to say it's amateurish, but just that his style has evolved so much. Um, I think a lot about his 90s movies, Heart 8, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, being a kind of triptych, a trilogy. A, you can absolutely see the progression um, from A to B to C in terms of him, um, you know, gathering his cast, 
finding his voice, you know, assembling these larger and larger, uh, you know, stories on these larger and larger canvases. Um, and then, you know, when he kind of blows everything up with Punch Drunk Love, uh, he doesn't look back. And so my relationship at the time, you know, when there was only two or three PTA movies that existed was um, that I loved Heart Eight. I still do, uh, but I think it's, you know, it's definitely a, a first movie. It's, um, it's, it's the only B plus in his career. You know, if everything else is an A minus, an A or an A plus, it's a solid, you know, four out of five stars, B plus. If it, if it played at Sundance today, um, I, I still think, it, I think it would stand out because of the level of craft, the, you know, maturity in the writing, like uh, not something you see. And because it's so out of time, because it, because it isn't at all what indie movies feel like today, where it does feel much more locked into the mid nineties moment. Um, um, so my relationship at the time was that I loved it because it was such a precious resource of, of a PTA movie. And, and there were only a few hours of it in existence. And so I watched it repeatedly, you know, so many times when I probably only had a dozen movies on DVD, this was one of them. And so it just went in the rotation. We'll be right back after this quick break. When Sidney greets Jimmy shortly after the time jump that bridges the prologue of Heart 8 with the main action, he is seated with his back to the wall. The image is weighted with double meaning. When encountering his rival, this inveterate hard-ass is keeping his vulnerable flank protected, but he has also left himself nowhere to run should things go bad. And when things do inevitably go bad between the one-time hard-ass and the wannabe, Sidney finds himself once more with his back against a metaphorical wall. By all appearances, the younger man has every form of leverage, possessing both Sidney's most closely guarded secret and a handgun that he can use should Sidney refuse to pay the steep fee he demands in exchange for keeping his silence. The preceding 80 minutes of screen time have shown Sidney to be a shrewd pragmatist, able to turn situations to his advantage, so the viewer may be inclined to expect some show of persuasion that will allow him to gain the upper hand. Sidney's chosen approach in the end is to speak at length, offering not so much a plea or an explanation as a barrage of staccato admissions. I will give you all that I have. Maybe before you were going to kill me, maybe. I don't know. I know John, and I love him like he was my own child. But I can tell you this, I don't want to die. I killed his father. I can tell you what it was. I, this is not an excuse. I'm not begging for clemency. All that matters I do not wish to sacrifice my life for John's well-being, but I will sacrifice this money for mine because you have asked me. Because after this, I will have done all I can for John and for myself. I'm going to ask you with all the heart and sincerity that I have, please do not put a bullet in me. And please don't tell John what I've done. I trust that once I give you this money, you and I will take separate paths, and that this negotiation will settle everything. That is my hope. I don't want to die. Sidney's tactic is not deceit, but rather an overwhelming surfeit of truth, one that deflects from his inner machinations by highlighting his vulnerability. 
Sidney lulls his rival into a false sense of complacency and sets the stage for his eventual strike. It's a strategy representative of Anderson's core belief in scripting his debut feature. Get two people talking, he declares on the DVD commentary track, and if it's engaging enough and wonderful enough, it'll free up the rest of the movie. This tactic would become a guiding star across his first three features, all of which hinge on characters attempting Sidney's gambit, speak directly and voluminously, and hope that verbal effusion will clear the path to salvation. At the outset of scripting Heart 8, at least so he claims on the DVD commentary, Anderson had no greater sense of the story's trajectory than the viewer does. With a clear vision of two characters, a down-on-his-luck young drifter and a steely older potential benefactor, but no guesses as to what their relationship might be or what they might want from one another, he decided to, quote, put them in a coffee shop and have them start talking and trust that it will eventually figure itself out, end quote. As he allowed the characters to describe their situations and perspectives, the plot unspooled for Anderson at the same rate that it eventually would for his audience. And his suspicions of Sidney's connection to John emerged at the same time as those clues might begin to coalesce for anyone else. With Anderson possessing no more information than the viewer, the story's composition, which reportedly took just two weeks, left little space for him to build any tantalizing implication or inference into its framework. That sort of deliberate ambiguity has little place in his first three films, stories in which anything worth expressing is worth declaring, subtlety and grace be damned. In his book on Anderson, George Tolles delineates a shift between Anderson's first three features, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia, and his next three, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, and The Master, which Tolles describes as a shift from the huffing and puffing of outward grapple toward a style of writing focused on the harder truths of the inner life that may well prove inexpressible. In those first three films, characters seek a sort of purified utterance, Tolles says, while in the following three they adopt a tactic of what he calls speech avoidance in their self-expression. Tolles' book was completed prior to 2014, and so he was not afforded the opportunity to absorb Anderson's most recent three films, Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread, and Licorice Pizza, into his schema. But if in those first three films characters say what they mean and mean what they say, and in the next three dialogue most often serves to obfuscate characters' true interiority, then his most recent three feature a more complex intermingling of overt and covert expression. Characters are largely explicit in expressing their needs, yet they struggle to perceive the intricacies of both their external circumstances and their unconscious motivations. For each of three central couples, speaking clearly can often lead them tragically afield of full understanding. When I watch this movie, it, it doesn't seem like Altman or Scorsese or Jonathan Demme. It feels like a David Mamet style movie. Like that feels like the key influence um, on this. I, I saw it a few months ago um, when Philip Baker Hall died. Uh, was the most recent time I revisited it. They played it um, at the American Cinematheque here in LA. And it was my first time seeing it on the big screen. Um, uh, and it, I hadn't seen it in years and it was sort of, great to watch um, again and see with a crowd and, and see how it played and, and and as well as I know the movie, it had probably been close to a decade since I'd gone back and watched it. Um, and and I think it 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 both shows the, you know, maturity that you don't often see in first movies in terms of the, the thing that really shines through is his empathy for the characters and even, you know, characters that, you know, you would look at as being kind of dim or losers or fuck ups. And yet he's not laughing at them. He really wants you to feel. And so when they're in these situations, you, you can just feel his love for them, you know, on, on the page. And I think that's, 
you know, that and the kind of um, level of his filmmaking craft from from the first movie is is what kind of sets it apart. And then the things that kind of, you know, if you would call it a the 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 weaker point is that his influences were definitely more on his sleeve and that it feels a little more mannered and and movie-ish, you know, than than he would kind of develop onto being even more natural is that this feels like a movie movie. Um, and I think that was on purpose. And I think he loved movies and wanted to make something, you know, that 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 had that ride to it. I think I think the one other thing that kind of carries through is um, his love of process. And so the same way that, you know, later on you see how, you know, Woodcock is with his team constructing the dresses or how Daniel is getting the oil, you're seeing how they run the scam, you know, and you're showing the step-by-step -step and how thrilling that can be for an audience um, to be taken through that. And I think that's, you know, the thing that really kind of grabs you, you know, first when you're watching it is, is uh, having Sydney as the mentor kind of take you through you know, this is how you get a leg up in, in this world um, a little bit. But no actor said, give me just five minutes of screen time and I will make you forget everyone else in the movie quite as effectively as Philip Seymour Hoffman showing up with that hair. I mean, it's like straight mullet singing. We don't wait for old people and making a goddamn meal out of his scene in Sydney. He is just on fire in this scene. Eight easy eight, run on a point of eight, better back on. Eight. Okay, I'm gonna light a cigarette now, old-timer. See, the thing is, is, I like you, and I'm gonna light a cigarette, and I'm gonna let you have this time to place your bet before I finish lighting this cigarette. And then when I finish lighting, I'm just gonna roll and fuck you. <laughs> You're laughing at that? I just said, fuck you to the man. Jesus Christ. <laughs> the way you look, I think you know what I'm saying, old-timer. I think you do. Jesus Christ, why don't you have some fun? Fun, fun. <laughs> All right, shaka laka doo, shaka laka dooby dooby doo, shaka laka doo. You got a little bit more there. Coming in there, baby. Shaka laka doo, baby. I'm almost lighting it, baby. I'm gonna light the cigarette, old timer. What are you gonna do? Two thousand dollar heart aid. Two thousand dollar heart aid's a bet. <laughs> oh man, you play that game, don't you? Oh shit. <laughs> I think technically I actually timed it. It's under four minutes. It's like three minutes and fifty seconds of screen time here. Boy, do you remember him. Hard eight when you consider it within PTA's overall body of work also reflects the awakening of this auteur, of this person who had such a distinct directorial sensibility and such a distinct creative intention about the stories that he wanted to tell. And the reason I feel like it signifies something special there is in many ways outside of the film, just about the difficulties that he ran into with Reicher, uh, through post-production on the film and just, you know, battling Robert Jones, the producer, like the entire time. I, I know that uh, it has become something of, of a legendary story that, you know, in warring with his producers, in disagreeing with Reicher over final cut of this film, 
uh, PTA went renegade as he has continued to do throughout so many other films in his career uh, in being uncompromising in his vision, but submitting his cut of the film, Sydney, to can back when it was called Sydney and and having it play in uncertain regard and, and launching his career through in many ways betting on himself which i think is you know a really funny uh way to think about heart eight uh, this film about characters who do have to gamble uh with fate and gamble with their lives and they don't always win there's a clear dividing line in his career you know after the first three films um and Punch Drunk Love is the one where he blows it up. And I'm not sure if he knew when he started making that movie that that was going to be how it went or if it was just a matter of kind of happenstance in the production of having the, you know, the, the pause in filming and a chance to edit what they had and then go back and reshoot a lot of it because it wasn't working. I'm not sure if that happy accident kind of, you know, ended up changing the course of his career or if the plan going in was... You know, I, I don't have this all storyboarded in my head and we're going to find it more on the set because that's, you know, the, the, the key difference between his first three movies was, you know, I'm a 26 year old film freak and I have everything in my head before we ever step onto the set. And the difference from everything he's made from Punch Drunk Love onward is here's a script and we're going to go to set and we're going to find the movie. And maybe even the movie that I wrote on the page is not going to be the movie that ends up in theaters. And that is going to be the most exciting part. And I think he's opened himself up so much more towards improvisation, not just for like actors going off dialogue, but just in the filmmaking itself and the editing, you know, not being afraid to kind of, solve problems on the fly and I think he's and his producers have adjusted his entire way of working to suit that and to allow for as much time as possible with the actors to shoot a scene in one place if it doesn't work shoot it again later in the schedule and kind of not have that you know equal you know we're going over budget we don't have time for this it, it's a part of the process now and so you know the, the greater number of material that might be deleted or alternate scenes and all that stuff, I'm sure has only grown as he's become more confident uh, as a filmmaker in knowing that he doesn't have to know it all on day one because the thing that they get at the end is going to be even better than the thing that he thinks he's going to make. When a soon-to-be big director begins their career with a smaller work, the so-called calling card film, it can be easy to dismiss the movie as a sketch, just a warm-up, not really worth talking about except in relation to the rest of the career. I used to see Heart 8 the same way. But with time, I've come to appreciate this brutal little movie for everything it is. Sad, blunt, and possessed of that distinct Andersonian bruised hope. In gambling, a Heart 8 is a notoriously bad bet, but in terms of low-budget indie features from the 1990s, you can't do much better. <laughs> 